Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. And on this episode, we are going to tackle, Craig, what I think myself personally, and I'm what guessing uh, a lot of our listeners find one of the most confusing histories of Florida, and that is the Seminole Wars. Yes, which I should emphasize does not involve football. So <laughs> let's just get that out <laughs> right now. It does not involve FSU and UF at all. It's a really important part of our history, uh, even to the point of uh, a lot of the place names in Florida come from that time period, come from people from that time period, like Dade County, for instance. There are three distinct periods of Seminole War. So you'll hear, you know, there are First Seminole War, Second Seminole War, Third Seminole War. This is uh, much of this is pre statehood. So we're talking about the 18 teens as far back as that mm-hmm. when Florida is really under Spanish control, but but the Americans are coming in because they want the land. And, and you know, this is a, a period in uh, our nation's history, obviously, between the Revolutionary War, between the Civil War, boundaries are, are fluid. There are still uh, a, a large population of indigenous people throughout the Southeast who, who move around regularly. Uh, our guest today is Joe Kinech, and Joe is a, a an author, a historian. He has written numerous books on Florida history with uh, an emphasis on the Seminole Wars, and, and he's going to take us through this confusing period of history for most, because again, most people were never taught this in school, you know, white people trying to understand Native American and indigenous society and culture. There, there's a barrier there anyway. So uh, this is a, a long one, and it can get dense at times, but bear with us because, uh, as you mentioned, Craig, an incredibly uh, instrumental uh, period when it comes to, to Florida's creation. Absolutely. And, it, and and there are some big names that would get, get name-checked here, Andrew Jackson and the, the Chief Osceola being two of them. So let's get to it. Thanks so much for joining us today, and and thanks for talking to us about a, a topic I, I think most people don't even think about, but it, it's really an important one for the history of Florida, isn't it? Very important for the history of Florida. We would not have settled it if this uh, if we had not come to some kind of conclusion with the quote unquote Indian problem, which is just as much a white problem as it was Indian. You know, being from the Tampa area, Tampa was founded as what? Fort Brooke. Uh, yeah, going back to 1824 when uh, Major Brooke went, went down there and uh, m- immediately wrote back two weeks later that he had heard that the blacks and Indians were in such congregations south of there uh, that he needed a, he needed more troops before he could send anyone uh, down to the Manatee River area. So it gives you an idea just um, how touchy and dangerous it could have been if you were on the frontier of Florida at that time. And remember, we are the oldest frontier state up until the 19-teens and 20s, actually. We weren't very well settled, didn't have a million people until way back then. To get an idea just how sparsely settled Florida really was. First, let me ask a really dumb question. How many Seminole Wars were there? Technically three. Wow. Yeah, the first one, of course, is always considered to be Jackson's invasion of Florida. Actually, uh, he had ordered someone else to do the invasion, but uh, they got called over to Fernandina to get rid of the pirates uh, over in Fernandina. 
uh, which they did, which they did. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, we had, it was a wild time, 18, 18, 18, 17, 18, lots of slaves were being imported from Florida or through Florida into the South, which of course it had been outlawed in the United States, but not in, in the Spanish territory. So they had to get, they had to get rid of that problem or at least attempt to. And then of course, Jackson, after the event at Fowl Town, uh, i.e., uh, he had sent Gaines over to, uh, and Gaines had sent down others, David Twiggs being one of them, uh, to take care of the uh, Neomophilus settlement and the Mikashuki, uh settlement at Fowl Town, uh, up near just south of the Flint River in southern Georgia and northern Florida. And the attack wound up with uh, some, killing some people in 1817. Shortly thereafter, Gaines needed some more supplies, etc., and ordered uh, a group to come up and bring supplies up, which they did or attempted to. And uh, Lieutenant Richard Scott uh, in 1817 went up the Apalachicola River and straight into an ambush that he knew was going to happen. Uh, he had been forewarned by the tra- traders along the Apalachicola River. I uh, said, you know, this is dangerous. These guys are up here. They're really ticked off about the attack on their village, and you're going to be in trouble. And indeed, he was. It was used to be referred to as a Scott massacre, but you can't call a massacre when the opposition is armed and willing to fire at you and, and defend themselves. So we don't call it that anymore. They wiped them out, all but six people. Uh, and one woman and five men uh, escaped. The woman was captured uh, and was later freed when Jackson's forces went down to around the Ekinfina River down in Taylor County, down that area, Taylor County, and just south of that. So you get an idea that uh, it was pretty wild. And it was at that time that Jackson uh, decided that uh, they need to be chastised. And the first Seminole War is nothing more than a bunch of skirmishes as Jackson chases the Mikasuki and, and uh, Seminoles, as they were referred to uh, general, generically at the time, went down the Apalachical, established Fort Gadsden, as we mentioned. They went across the area, and there's a map showing that, which means they probably went across parts of Tate's Hell, which uh, is per- aptly named, by the way. You can I've get been there. Oh, there yeah. Are, be. oh, yeah. They went through and went through Tallahassee, uh, north of St. Mark's, where the Spanish had already established a garrison, as we all know. That goes back to the 1600s. It basically serviced this area uh, and also, of course, Fort San Luis, uh, which is here in Tallahassee, the largest, by the way, come on up and see the largest recreation of a Native American complex with the Spanish mission uh, in North America. And it That's is great. quite something, a council house that sleeps 1,500. What ended that first period, which I, I guess only occurred up in the Panhandle, it was con- sort of confined to that area, was it not? No, it is not. No, no. What happens is uh, they go to the area around Lake Mekasaki, most importantly, Kanaji. Uh, was basically encamped. Kanaji was the overall, I don't use the word chief, but the headman of the, of the tribal council in that area. Uh, Jackson's force went up there. The Indians are not stupid. They uh, had over 300 buildings in the area. By the way, that makes it larger than San Augustine or Pensacola at the same wow. time. Not That's amazing. Of them, which had over 220. Gives you an idea just how big and how what kind of a conglomeration this was. They saw Jackson's army coming. Uh, it had around 1,500 men, including Indian allies, mostly Creek, 
uh, and they decided to put in a little bit of a rear guard action and fled southwards to the Suwannee River area, uh, going through, of course, in Taylor and Dixie County to get down there. Uh, they went to Suwannee Old Town area, uh, which is still a very important little site, uh, usually just passed through by most of us going on 2719, but it did have some significance. And they make it down to, uh, there. There was a large uh, number of black uh, settlements in and around that village. Uh, it shows up on the maps that were published at the time. And as a result, they go to all, you know, they obviously went out of the panhandle and went further down. The other thing I was going to ask you about is uh, I think a lot of people don't understand or didn't, don't realize that the uh, Seminoles sort of made common cause with escaped slaves that had settled, had settlements here in Florida. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Yes, they did. Uh, at the same time, of course, they practiced slavery and took a number of blacks in. And there's really a misconception, I think. Uh, it's my opinion only. I don't think that the black Seminole movement is as big as people would like to think. Um, Seminoles were somewhat dependent upon their agricultural skills, uh, which they the men did not practice in the Seminole Nation. Uh, the women did most of the farming, as we know. Uh, but the other thing, the other problem with that is that to be an effective person uh, in the Seminole Nation, you have to be a member of tribal council, which means you have to be adopted into the tribe if you're not already born into it. And very few blacks were ever adopted into the tribe. Abraham was one. Uh, and he, of course, becomes an extraordinarily important man uh, as far as having the language skills to negotiate with whites, blacks, and Spanish. Uh, he uh, spoke a, a bit of all those languages, which made him a very valuable man at the time. Uh, plus, he, of course, was a, a very charismatic man from all accounts that we've seen. Uh, somewhere in the nature of about six foot one, uh, very muscular uh, and very knowledgeable. So therefore, he's an asset. Um, but to say that the black hold over the Seminoles, uh, that's just as far as I'm concerned, malarkey. You can't ha you can't have a say unless you're a member of tribal council. And only Abraham was the only one that I know who ever showed up to a tribal council that we can document. So what marked the end of that first Seminole War, or, or did it just sort of peter out? We did not ever let go of Fernandina. We kept troops up there until the exchange of flags in the summer of uh, 1821. Robert Butler, of course, accepted the flag in St. Augustine, exchange there, uh, and Jackson personally exchanged the flags in Pensacola. Mm -hmm. But basically, it ends uh, at that point in time, if you will, once the American gets Americans get uh, political control uh, and start bringing troops and other things and settlers uh, into what is now Florida, uh, things start changing drastically. So what touched off the second Seminole War then? 
Basically, there were a series of treaties, uh, the first one in 1823, Moultrie, Moultrie Creek, which you know, basically said, in principle, and that word, of course, is a, a vague term in the diplomatic right. world. But at any rate, they uh, drew up some treaties and uh, later, of course, sent some uh, representatives requiring these uh, Seminoles, they called everybody, to send representatives out to the new land of Oklahoma where they wanted to transfer them. And this was known. The Seminoles were not blind to what the object of Jeffersonian slash Jacksonian depopulating of Florida's Indian population. It was a very, very touch and go. They sent people out there, uh, seven uh, quote-unquote chiefs, uh, had been from various groups, none of whom were part of the overall tribal council at the time that they were sent out there, though they did represent their villages. And so therefore, they're mostly people who could be manipulated, uh, threatened, uh, what have you. And they came back and said, oh, it's wonderful out there. We're good. I, we can't wait to go. Uh, and of course, when others found out about it and what they really thought about it, uh, once they got back and had their individual conference councils, uh, they found out that uh, the, the far west, uh, beyond the western Mississippi, beyond Mississippi, uh, was anything but desirable. But I want to point out one thing: that the Seminoles were very good at adapting. Uh, I'm using the general generic term of Seminole, mostly Miccosukee, really. Uh, the general term. They are extraordinarily adaptive if you consider where they came from. Southwest Georgia and, Al and southeastern Alabama is a totally different concept than going to uh, North Florida and then down to Central Florida, where they didn't have enough food or game to even survive on uh, as a result of the, the Treaty of Moultrie Creek's boundaries of where they were supposed to be confined to. Uh, they actually... Even Governor Duval said, "This is, you know, it's so pathetic. We have to expand these, you know, uh, these, these boundaries to give them food." Uh, hmm. And they did. Wow. But then, the, of course, then they wind up going further south, where they already had other people who had already been there uh, and knew about the Everglades and were able to adapt to life in the Everglades and the various "quote unquote" islands there. Uh, the, the tree. It's islands, one of the yeah. most. Yeah, it's one of the most adaptive cultures uh, that I've ever read about. Uh, you don't find this with other groups. Uh, and they were able to thrive in all three or four uh, settings, which are amazing. different nat natural resources, et cetera. It's quite mm -hmm. an amazing group. But then Florida, the Florida being Florida, Florida I know. we wanted whatever land they, they had moved to, we wanted that too. <laughs> well, basically, yes. And a lot of yeah. that had to do with cattle grazing. Mm. Uh, the South Georgians, of course, were very big on that and growing corn, etc. I think there's a, a great deal of jealousy because when they started looking at the headman's homes in some of these villages, and you take a look at the 1823 report that was was filed, and some of the others that uh, uh, Horatio Dexter filed in one in 1823, that's described at Palatkalaha. What do they show? A clobbered two two story house with with cedar shingles. Uh, pardon me, this is a an uncivilized bunch of savages. They did crop rotation. They did all the sophisticated things you 
expect a civilization to do at that time period. And they were better at it than the Georgians at that time, which really ticked them off, of course. Yeah. And so as a result, they were, they like you said, they wanted that land too. Mm-hmm. And the Seminoles can make it that prosperous. We need to be that prosperous. Yeah. And uh, so that's one of the driving forces behind this. And as they move further south into Florida uh, and start coming, of course, and bringing their cattle, which the Seminoles not having a, a great uh, area on which to grow cattle uh didn't mind on occasion raiding like they always had and vice versa the georgians raided the seminal encampments for cattle uh that was became kind of a border war that resource uh and the resources that go into the cattle industry which still is with us uh thankfully uh it's one of those things that basically drove uh the greed if you want to call it that uh for land and cattle grazing land etc uh, of those coming further south and it really put a lot of pressure on the Seminoles, who retaliated, uh, as you would expect. At, at what point do the, does the army get involved? It gets involved in 1835, when the, that was the kind of the date that they were setting for these guys to try to remove the uh, Seminoles and move them out west. And they had meetings, of course, uh, Wiley Thompson, the Indian agent at Fort King and others, um, met with many of the headmen of the tribe. Uh, including one of the young hotheads uh, who was uh, a descendant of the Red Sticks, as we know now. We didn't know it then, but uh, some guy named Osceola. Um, he basically, amongst others, led the re- resistance. I'll call it that. Uh, he led the resistance to the uh, attempt to maneuver, maneuver uh, the Indians out of Florida. And it erupted uh, after a number of small skirmishes, particularly in Alachua County, uh, what is today Alachua County, in and around the town of Micanopy, the oldest interior town in Florida. When when you get there, uh, you you find out what it was really like sometimes when you go into the areas that have not been developed in and around there in Hawthorne and La Clusa and all those places. You see, there's, there's a lot more of the native Florida still there. And that's what the Seminoles were facing and defending because they learned how to work there. As a result, of course, however, it became, the pressure was so intense, the Army had sent additional troops there. Clinch was saying, and and Duncan Clinch was in in charge of the forces in Florida at that moment, and he was saying, I don't have enough. I have 500 men total with all my, the garrisons, et cetera. Uh, I don't have enough men to control the Seminoles. And he was right. It was spot on. Uh, but they didn't listen to him in Washington. Jackson said he could go through with through there with 60 to 80 men or whatever uh, and you know be done with it very shortly, uh, mm-hmm. which was BS, but that's beside the point. Uh, politicians <laughs> being what they that's are. Jackson's uh, ego so, talking. Yeah. As a reason, mm-hmm. uh, they estimate or guesstimate, I would say better, uh, about 5,000 people, uh, including about 1,500 to 2,000 warriors at most. Um, hmm. That was the whole force. Or any major battles that ensued. Or, oh, you know, yeah. More, this, more this, we're getting right run. to that right now. The first major thing is they it was well-planned, extraordinarily well-executed piece of guerrilla warfare. Wiley Thompson and the trader there at uh, Fort King got together and were having a little bit of a dinner. Uh, and Osceola and everybody opened fire on them and hmm. killed everybody in the, in the cabin. Uh, the, of the trade of the trading house, uh, Thompson was killed. I think he had something like 17, 16 or seventeen bullets in him. They made sure he was gone. Then, of course, at the same time, or roughly the same time on the same day, uh, Alligator uh, and Kawakachi or Wildcat and Osceola 
took care of Dade's command. Uh, we used to call it Dade's Massacre, but it was the attack on there. It was a perfectly planned ambush. 108 people were killed. Uh, only three survived. Can we pause for a moment and just talk a little bit about Osceola, who I think is the one figure people might know from the Seminole Wars? They would know him because he was an outstanding military leader. Pure and simple, he was a warrior uh, at first class. Uh, every man who met him, white or Indian or black, uh, had respect for him because of, the, of his presence. He's just one of those people who had a natural presence. Wiley Thompson thought he had him uh, befriended, uh, etc. He gave him mm-hmm. a, uh, a rifle at one time or another uh, that uh, Osceola made sure that that rifle was used to uh, to help uh take care of Riley Thompson. I misspoke earlier. He was there on the killing of Thompson and friends and alligator and McAnope and others. McAnope, by the way, uh, was the, the headman, the technical headman of the uh, Seminole nation at that time elected by tribal council. Uh, he was not necessarily the strongest man, but he is underestimated by a lot of people of his day uh, because he was around a lot and they always consulted with him a white or Indian consulted with McAnope. Yes, he may have been uh, short and rotund, et cetera, compared to others, but he was respected, uh, and he's respected for his intelligence, and people have underestimated this man for a long time. Uh, the more you read and get into it, and uh, the more you find out his leadership was uh, was pretty important. It wasn't uh, the military leadership that Osceola and Alligator and Kawakachi or Wildcat provided, but he and uh, Philip, of course, uh, over in the East Coast. They, these were rather important. Shortly after these uh, events take place, you stop and think about it. Clinch has 500 troops, round round number, and 108 of them are eliminated at Dade's Massacre. And he knows he's got to face roughly 1,500 to 2,000 warriors. Uh, he's going to be quite worried. And mm-hmm. he uh, makes a number of uh, pleadings to, uh, as did the governor of Florida at the time, made pleadings, please send troops. We need them. Get them down here. So they allowed the various states to, of course, get volunteers to come in. Uh, and they did. South Carolina sent a whole bunch, as you would imagine. Florida, the central part of Florida, by the way, was heavily settled by people from uh, the Carolinas. Tennessee sent volunteers because Jackson called for them. And when Jackson made the call in Tennessee, they answered. They listened, yeah. Uh, they sent down a number of, they, they came down, number of troops from mostly Tennessee and Kentucky from that group uh, came in through Tallahassee and uh, on down. Uh, it was uh, quite a, a conglomeration. And stop and think of the coalition you now have to build between the various militias with different commanders, different types of training, command. Uh, Native American allies, the Creeks were sending uh, allies to come down to help. The Coweta, uh, who had helped Jackson earlier, also provided some people into this group. So you've got a lot of the plus uh, you're bringing down, uh, essentially, when you take a look at the um, biographies of the commanding officers in Florida, many of them are West Pointers. This is the first major war where West Pointers figured large in this. And really stop and interesting. Think when you take a yeah. look, yeah. When when you look later on at the Civil War, the American Civil War, and you take a look at the commanding officers or generals there, over three hundred of the generals in the Civil War fought in the Second or Third Seminole War. Fascinating. We had an impact all mm-hmm. over the place. Yeah. 
Yeah. And stop thinking. They said, you know, Clinch was complaining that he did it. Of course, we know about the uh, first battle of the Withlacoochee, uh, which did not go well for the whites that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Keith Call was involved in that. And also you had a, a major problem with uh, the fact that we didn't couldn't get supplies, uh, the, the cost of getting anything in Florida, especially for the dragoons uh, who needed the horse materials, uh, you couldn't you couldn't buy it cheaply here. It matter of fact, it actually cost them in the first few years more for vittles, as they called them, uh, for the horses than it did for the humans. And don't forget the the um, people who supplied the United States Army frequently shorted the army, like. One of the things they did, we know from the reports in the in the quartermaster general's office, that about maybe a third or more of the sugar was actually sand at the bottom. Oh my God! <laughs> the troops complained, but uh, but the officers uh, they got the sugar. <laughs> wow! <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the kind of thing that was going on. It was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jessup, as quartermaster general, even chastised some of the officers uh, for using the. Um, wagons that were being supplied to the army to carry supplies uh for bringing their girlfriends into the camps oh my god <laughs> so uh yeah we we had a kind of a loose organization somewhat at that time and the volunteers didn't have that problem but the regular army did amazing but um yeah. so, but getting back to the main point here it picked up quickly we had a huge attack that basically wiped out one of the most prosperous economies in colonial or early America. That was the plantations along the St. John's River uh, that were growing rice and all sorts, indigo, uh, very marketable crops, some cotton. Uh, that kind of stuff got wiped out. Um, we're talking some major, you know, Joseph Hernandez had three, Hernandez, uh, our first representative in, in Congress from Florida, lost three plantations. One plantation was evaluated at not too far from Lake Monroe, but in that area was evaluated at $250,000 that year's uh, evaluation. It would be a a couple of million uh, in today's money. Gives you an idea that these were very prosperous places. They got wiped out. The entire east coast of Florida uh, was basically forced to go back into San Augustine. Hence the name that I have, Fear and Anxiety on the Florida Frontier, the second book I did on the Florida Wars, the Florida Indian Wars, a wonderful uh, painting Let me uh, for my cover showing uh, Kawakachi and Osceola who were captured under a white flag, as you remember. Well, tell that story about I'm, I'm Osceola's, Osceola's capture, yeah. Well, it's one of the most important uh, things in, in the war because it makes Osceola a national hero. Yes, he was leading the resistance, uh, but they were called in for the fourth or fifth time for a conference with uh, American generals. By this time, Jessup was now the commanding officer in Florida. They'd already gone through Winfield Scott, Richard Keith Call, Junkin Clinch, and they got to, to the, got to Jessup, who was a very good attack, or he had a pretty good idea of overall strategy. Not that it worked, but he had an overall a good idea. But one of the things he realized that every time they met in council with uh, the Seminoles, sometimes with Osceola, sometimes without, uh, they would be, you know, feeded, given uh, various gifts, etc. And then, you know, the next uh, month later, they're back there shooting people with some of the lead that they had acquired in, in these meetings. And Jessup said, enough of this. So as a result, uh, they had a meeting. Uh, 
under Hernandez, etc. And they were meeting them uh, in East Florida. And when they got there, they were surrounded by American troops and and volunteers of Jessup of uh, Hernandez's uh, Florida volunteers, uh, and they surrounded them and captured them. Uh, took took them to St. Augustine, and that's what uh, Jackson's Jackson Walker, uh, his wonderful painting, is the cover of my book on fear and anxiety in Florida. Takes them there, as you all know. Osceola was ill. Uh, and was later transferred to Fort Moultrie, South Carolina, and in 1837. He dies there. Uh, what happened to his head, uh, we do not know. That was a prized uh, possession, I gather, of a certain doctor uh, who wanted to. Phrenology was a big thing back then. So he cut off his head and kept it, right? Somebody did. We don't know if, that, if it was uh, the doctor there, uh, but someone... Uh, his body was decapitated and uh, his uh, skull taken uh, for measurements, etc. But stop and think about it. This war goes from uh, December of 1835 when Dade's command and Thompson were killed. And that's December, so it's at the area, very end of it. And it lasts till 1842. So in the middle of 1842, Osceola is gone by 1837. So the war so kept going. leading the Seminoles the remainder of those years? Yeah. Okay, that's when you get into... People like, uh, well, Philip was captured very shortly thereafter, but you get into Kawakichi, who escaped uh, from St. Augustine, uh, from Fort Marion, as they called it at that time, the Castillo San Marcos, uh, as we know it today. But he escaped from there, along with about uh, eight to ten other people at that time. Wow. Uh, no one knows exactly how it was done. Many people think he walked out instead of climbing <laughs> through the window that is about 10 or 12 feet higher than the floor uh, and barred. Uh, so we don't really know the exact story of that, but um, he did escape and, you know, rallied the troops along with others. Uh, Alligator, one of the most important of the time. Uh, Tiger Tail that you know about in the Tampa area, because he was in that area frequently, met his home up on the Homosassa River. And the first mapping of the Homosassa uh, and the various runs that go into it was done by Hoffman's 6th Infantry trying to capture Tiger Tail, what is called today even, Tiger Tail's Island. It was an interesting place, but it was the first time that area had ever been mapped. And the Army was astonished at the number of springs that we have along the coast of uh, West Florida, especially. Uh, you stop and think about it, Wikiwachi, Rainbow Springs, all that, uh, all come out in that area. All of them uh, were major settlement areas uh, of uh, the Seminoles and uh, their allies along the way, including many of the escaped slaves and uh, blacks who had decided to live with them, whether they were escaped or not. Uh, it was uh, quite an agglomeration of people. But th so and then we, we figure... And let me make one point here. There were nearly 800, I'll use the phrase African-American in this case, who escaped from the plantations in Florida to join up with the Seminole. Now, whether that was by choice or by force, we do not know. Uh, don't speculate. But that is that makes that the largest single slave revolt in American history. Right wow. here in Florida with the Second Seminole War, which in the end was the most expensive in American lives, military lives, lost 1500 and money spent around $30 million in that time period's money. Wow. The most expensive Indian war and most uh, and deaths 
and in money spent of all the wars of the in, against Native Americans in U.S. history, including the Apache Wars out west with Geronimo and others. And we just ignore that. Yet when you take yeah. a look at our map of Florida, how many places begin with Fort Myers, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Pierce, you keep on going, and these are all named uh, for people who fought uh, in, in the Seminole Wars. I mean, wow. <laughs> when they talk about Fort Pierce, they're talking about Benjamin Franklin Pierce, not President Pierce, oh, who was his brother, we might add. There, it's just every, everywhere you look, there is an impact from the Seminole Wars that we are reminded that this happened, yet we choose to ignore it. Years ago, when I was teaching the gifted in, in Broward County, uh, I taught there uh, middle school for seven years. One of the things I did, of course, was teach part-time at the junior college and F at FAU. Uh, and I wound up with about 35 or 40 textbooks that we used to teach American history in, uh, in those two schools, uh, Broward Community College and FAU. And I gave them to one of my first assignments every year for a couple of years uh, was to look into this uh, these textbooks and find information about the Seminole Wars. Most of the textbooks did not did not have any mention of the Seminole Wars. Wow. Uh, there is the, the most important thing that, or the largest number of, of entries showed a picture of Osceola, the usual picture we have of him, mm -hmm. and uh, a biographical sketch of him, uh, and it lasted maybe two paragraphs. That's it. And that was, it. That and was, that was the it. most extensive mention. And here it is, you know, one of the most important wars we've ever fought. Studying these wars would have aided, I think, our attempts to uh, do guerrilla versus guerrilla warfare in places like the Philippines Good and point. later, of course, in Vietnam. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has been written about extensively, as we know. Sure. And that's one of the reasons that uh, not too long ago, a friend of mine was hired at West Point to teach early American military history, and he has specialized uh, and has done a number of books on the Seminole Wars. So when, when you uh, get an idea that when West Point <laughs> finally takes uh, <laughs> acknowledges it, by yeah. the way, uh, un until Sam was hired, uh, I, I was the go-to person for the Seminole Wars for West Point. And my friend Alan Amon headed up the uh, uh, archive there for years, uh, mm -hmm. and um, we became our still good friends. This is a, 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 an incredibly confusing period of history for most people, and my head is spinning, and I'm sure many of, of our audience members as well. You've, you've thrown a lot of uh, names uh, you know, of, of military leaders and Native American leaders who are not particularly well-known outside of Andrew Jackson and Osceola. And much of our, you know, we'll call it popular American history, uh, omits the indigenous people. We've got the Spanish, the British, and the Americans here. This is pre-Florida statehood. These uh, wars are multiple and kind of go in, in phases. They, they, they don't start with, you know, Fort Sumner, like we're, we're used to, and then end with you know, uh, some, you know, yeah, a, a dropping yeah. of the, the, the atomic bomb. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. very difficult for people to get their heads around this. And like you talked about, most people, myself included, were never uh, presented this in, in any sort of history. So I want to dial back and, and, and go wider just for a second here. You, you mentioned the, the Seminole Indians and their ancestral homeland is Alabama uh, and Georgia, not Florida, correct? The, the Seminoles are not Florida Indians. That would be 
a misapprehension. And let me explain myself. Many of these people are Miccosukee, uh, speak Chitty, uh, and or uh, Muskogee. Boundaries that we know of, of Georgia and Florida and Alabama didn't exist for them. Uh, those They yeah. were very fluid. The word Seminole refers to, in this case, people who separated themselves from the Creek Confederation, which was extraordinarily loose, I might add. That was never, uh, not, like, not quite as tight as the Iroquois Confederation, but it was, it was loosely organized. And certain factions wanted to control uh, the villages uh, that these people were from or left. And they simply said, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. We're, we're, we're not going to pay you tribute or uh, listen to your counsel. We're going to go elsewhere. And they did. They came to Florida. Uh, many of them were here long before the Seminole Wars began. Matter of fact, my friend Patsy West uh, has documents and, and looked at many things uh, that indicate they were in the Everglades as early as the late 1600s, uh, wow. early 1700s. Hmm. So th they have been around all over. They're not all, quote unquote, Seminole. Anyone who was not part of the Creek Confederation was viewed as apart from or separate from, i.e. Seminole uh, in Spanish. Uh, separate okay. from so that uh, that, that one can't term Seminole ones. really is not specific or accurate. It's more of a catch-all for anyone not with these other groups. And I think you know white people. Let's just say, look yeah. at, at Seminole. Well, this must be a distinct group with a distinct culture, a distinct language, a, a distinct ancestry, and that that's just not accurate. Not. No. Okay. Well, I, I was just going to say, but but they were largely pushed by American military forces out of. Alabama, Georgia, into Florida, and then then successively pushed south. Although you mentioned that there were some in the, some of these folks in the Everglades centuries earlier than this. Yeah, well, it's I hesitate to say they were pushed. Uh, in many cases, now don't forget at the same time that we got the Second Seminole War beginning in Florida. You also had the second, what they call the Second Creek War, uh, in Alabama, uh, and that of course course, played a, a major role in getting, quote-unquote, the Red Stick faction, because, you know, when Jackson went down there and fought the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1815, 16-period, uh, I think it was actually a, a year, 1814, a year earlier. But anyway, uh, that gives you an indication that uh, that faction of people fled Alabama. That's called the Red Stick faction. Those were the, one, mm -hmm. the losing side at the Horseshoe Bend. Those kind of people left there. And that's where you get Hillis Hadjo, uh, France, sometimes called Francis by the uh, whites. Um, that's when he, he comes down to Florida and leads that faction down. Uh, Kenaji, uh, who was involved uh, and was part of the Red Stick faction, uh, came to Florida probably a little earlier than that. Uh, so, mm -hmm. this, like I said, these are fluid areas. You can't use modern boundaries uh, to describe yeah. where these people are from. Uh, I think it would be a misnomer. It really misleads people as to the fluidity and uh, cohesiveness sometimes at the same time uh, of the Southeastern Indians, be they Creek, Seminole, Miccosukee, uh, whatever name you want to call them. Uh, there were distinct differences in certain areas, of course, between Chickasaw and Choctaw, who were notorious enemies of each other, uh, you know, that kind of thing, and the Cherokee, uh, who were uh, totally different uh, in many ways, but they shared the same uh, kind of cultural uh, affinities uh, and were frequently considered, if you were part of a certain clan, you were, if you had 
people in the same clan in another in a say a Cherokee and Seminole uh, or uh, or Creek, um, well, they would be considered they considered themselves relatives because they're part of that, not a tribe, but more of the clan. So you know you get an idea that this is a very complex world. Uh, that we're looking at. I'm not, I'm not a Seminole uh, or Native American, and I don't pretend to understand all of that subtlety, mm-hmm. shall we call it, uh, at all. I can understand basic stuff, but as far as how that interacts, I would be the last one to tell you I know it. Go how ahead. are the Seminole different from the Miccosukee? Mostly uh, the Miccosukee are much larger overall group because it's based on linguistics. Uh, and as I use the word tribal, but uh, the various clan relationships. Uh, Seminole is a, a Spanish word for those who left uh, Seminole. Uh, and so therefore, it doesn't really apply in the Native American sense. It's confusing. I know. I totally mm-hmm. agree. It is confusing. It confuses me sometimes. The third Seminole War, is that the one that takes place as Florida is becoming a state? No. Let's finish the second Seminole War. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wherefore you got chronology for your listeners okay. to listen to understand. The second yeah. Seminole War, of course, the major battle uh, that we all know very well. I'm sure we all know, right? <laughs> um, led by one Zachary Taylor, who later became president of the United States, uh, was fought under Jessup's overall command at that point in time. But it was the Battle of Lake Okeechobee on Christmas Day, 1837. And you can, they do re- reenactment down there every year. It's fairly worthwhile because the Seminole Nation of Florida has taken an active role in that in the last few years. And it's it's quite a, quite a little of a fair. But what's Good. Uh, what's neat about it is the fact that, again, here is the United States Army in the dress West Point European-style battles, trained to attack frontally most of the time, which was disastrous. I mean, you're going across you know, waist-deep water with a musket that, you know, you don't want to get your powder wet. Uh, and, of course, the Indians under uh, Sam Jones by this point in time, he was a spiritual leader and physical leader at that point in time. Uh, he's, uh, that's Abiyaka, by the way, in, in mm-hmm. the, the, the tongue. Um, but Sam Jones is basically is the said, now we need, this is where we need to be, this is where we need to fire. And they've slaughtered. I mean, they killed roughly 128 American soldiers and volunteers, including a very controversial uh, killing of uh, Gentry and many of the Missouri volunteers who had come to fight. To give you another in- incidence of another state sending other volunteers to fight Native Americans in Florida. And then they disappear back into the Everglades. They lost maybe eight or nine people killed in that wow. battle. That's it. You know, it gives you an idea who won that battle. Well, we yeah. took the land. Well, uh, if you like waste deep water and calling out land, which we did later, of course, in the great boom, um, you, know, you get the idea uh, of what it was like. Zachary Taylor, of course, then decided that he takes over when Jessup uh, gives up command, goes back to Washington as quartermaster. Uh, he takes over and divides uh, part of the northern part of the state into 20 squares. Thank God for that. Not that it was militarily effective. It was not. Uh, I disagree with one of the historians of uh, Zachary Taylor, who said this was a great plan and effectively controlled the Seminoles. You don't create a 25 or 20 mile square uh, and control anybody when you only have 10 to 20 people in your fortification. 
Yeah. But what yeah. it did for Florida, it created a it created our first road road network going connecting all these forts. The military oh. built some over a thousand miles worth of roads, which Holy we cow. had never had before in the interior of Florida. Yeah. It's a fantastic piece. And we got to mapping and all this. They brought the topographical engineers in to do uh, a fantastic job. Uh, and a lot of the people that you will recognize from the Civil War were involved in mapping. For example, the area around Lake Worth was mapped by Joseph Johnston, who became the first leader of the Confederate forces during the Civil War. Some guy named George Thomas did the Micanopy Square. That's the Rock of Chickamauga, for those of you who hmm. know your Civil War history. You know, these are very important people who did very good work and uh, did it very thoroughly for that time period. Amazing. The Third Seminole War that you wanted to know about, uh, one guy did the first mapping of Key Largo. And a guy named Abner Doubleday, whom some of you sports fanatics down in Tampa area will recognize <laughs> that name. Mr. Baseball. Baseball. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he was he was a captain and did some very good, excellent mapping. As a matter of fact, his map was so accurate that there would not have been a lake surprise down there if the U.S. deputy surveyors could have gotten inland to to do that. His map is the first one to show what we now know as Lake Surprise. When Flagler's Railroad went across there, it wasn't on any USGS map at that time or any survey map from the General Land Office. So they were totally surprised because you've got this 800-acre lake that cost – it took longer to build a bridge across uh, Lake Surprise than it did to build a seven-mile bridge. So it was so, so mucky and so deep and so uncertain. That's an old story. But gotcha. getting back to the Seminole War, I yes. know uh, <laughs> these are just too much fun stuff. But you get you get into this uh, whole business uh, about uh, what Zachary Taylor did. It was a very beneficial thing for Florida, but it didn't solve the problem. It didn't get rid of the Seminoles. Uh, the the mapping proved, yeah, that helped. Uh, the fortifications and the troops going back and forth, uh, well, left a few messengers open to being being killed or murdered uh, along the way. But for the most part, uh, it did basically show that the army is moving. It is organizing things. It's starting to get an idea of how to go about doing this. And one of the things uh, later on, of course, they brought uh, Zachary Taylor left and they brought in uh, Armstead, which uh, didn't re- uh, really change much, except for Armistead did one small thing. He started campaigning in the summer. The campaign season in Florida, as you know, uh, you only go in the dry weather. Uh, but otherwise, you're, you're waist deep in water and muck yeah. and full of mosquitoes and snakes and alligators, all sorts of good stuff. And they only campaigned uh, without campaigning during the hour wet season, especially in Central and South Florida. So as a result, what Armistead did uh, is he started campaigning uh, during the whole year. And then when at the end of the war, the Second Seminole War uh, in 1842, uh, by that time, William Jenkins Worth, for whom Fort Worth and Lake Worth are both named, um, was put in charge, and he insisted on sending the troops out. He said, we have as many men dying of sickness in the fortifications. They might as well be out getting sick and shooting Indians, oh, uh, essentially. Uh, and so they did. And that put year-round pressure on the Seminoles, which they had not done before. They were able to grow during the regular growing season, harvest the crops, and you know basically keep on fighting. Now they can't do that. Uh, the Hoffman expedition that I mentioned on the Homosassa, uh, there's a wonderful passage where they had interviewed Tiger Tail, 
Sprague, this is John T. Sprague, had interviewed Tiger Tail. He was the adjutant for Worth, by the way, and took down many of the uh, correspondence and used it for his uh, The Florida War, uh, which is a, the basic source still to this day. Um, Sprague uh, quotes uh, Tiger Tail as saying, uh, he, when Hoffman's troop came, uh, troops came through, they destroyed everything in the village. What they couldn't consume, they burned. That meant the entire year's gathering of food was destroyed. They could not replant and be able to survive that. Two months later, Tiger Tail said, I can't survive. My men and women cannot survive on this. They surrendered. And he is up in an oak tree, <laughs> in a water oak probably, on the high, highest limbs watching his entire his entire existence being destroyed. Wow. It's kind of a touching letter that is quoted and it's worth looking at. Now, getting back to your third Seminole war, there was an interlude. Of course, uh, the third Seminole war begins with a, an attack on it's, it's called a banana patch, which uh, that was not the reason for why they went after them. <laughs> the constant pressure uh, of population moving down deputy surveyors going out and surveying the land within the boundary of what the Seminoles believed was theirs uh, by treaty. Well, they thought was treaty. The Americans did not recognize that. It was only an agreement was worth. So there's confusion again uh, on the translation uh, and understanding of what you got and what you don't get. The, the major problem, of course, uh, and I want to bring this out briefly, uh, and it's all, it's all it's worth, uh, not one group of surveyors was ever attacked and eliminated or like they were out in Texas where they had a major battle called surveyor's battle. Uh, we didn't have that in Florida. The Seminoles knew what those men were doing. They didn't, they opposed it, but they did not take it out on essentially unarmed men. They usually went out with one guy who did the hunting and providing the thing for the surveying party. Uh, but in this case, uh, they did not attack any surveyors in Florida. Um, but the surveyors were a sign that white civilization is moving in and you don't have much longer. And they understood this perfectly. Billy Bullegs, uh, who was last major well, along with Sam Jones and a few others. Uh, but for the most part, uh, they understood what this was all coming about uh, and what was going to ha happen. They decided uh, in 1855 uh, to attack one of the groups uh, that was out scouting and mapping uh, in the area. And it was indeed a military mapping of the area. It wasn't a, uh, wasn't a or surveyor like the deputy surveyors who did things in squares and very easy to follow pattern. They were out mapping what was out there. And one group got to uh, the area where uh, Bullegs years earlier had planted some bananas. They could care less about that. They could always come back and get them. You know, we do eat. the only way to destroy the bananas, chop down the trees and burn them, which they were not doing. The attack was a planned attack. They'd had enough. We are going to make a statement, and they did. Uh, they made the attack, killed a number of uh, soldiers at the time, wounded the commanding officer, and as a result, began the Third Seminole War, which is nothing more than a series of skirmishes. Uh, it was probably the most unnecessary war uh, forced upon this, uh, what we call the Seminoles and Mikasukis uh, of any war, Indian war, we can think of. There was, how many people immediately rushed down to the Everglades where most of them were living at this time to settle on that land. They didn't. 
it was too hostile. It was harsh. It was wet. Uh, it wasn't fertile. Yes, the Seminoles had proven that the islands could be fertile, but they, uh, the white farmers come in and uh, found it to be pretty barren. Uh, it was pretty sad, matter of fact. Uh, you didn't get a major settlement in southern Florida until the, the land boom, essentially. But there just weren't any big cities ever down there. Yeah. Uh, some tourist things like uh, uh, over at Punta Gorda and, on Yuseppa Island that uh, Kali later owned. Uh, but as a result, anyway, the, the battles are, are a number of, there are no battles. They're just a series of skirmishes. Uh, I think the biggest one involved the killing of about 12 or 13 Indians and four or five white uh, Florida militiamen, for the most part. Uh, there were a number of hit and run attacks that were effective. And the, the leadership uh, of the military that they sent down here was uh, only a lieutenant colonel. Uh, so as a result, you're not. To, it, it, the the, uh, the secretary of war did not take it as a a massive thing. How did the how did the war end? And and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Seminoles never surrendered, right? No, they did not. Not at that point in time. Oh, they never surrendered in the usual sense of the word. Bowlegs and those who followed him, uh, like I said, he's not the only one. But uh, Bowlegs did uh, bring his group in uh, and were. Uh, shipped out at Bull, basically at Bowlegs Creek and uh, just east of Fort or eastern part of Fort Myers that used to be the dividing line between that and a little town called Tice. Um, but it was a pretty sad affair. It basically, we just we're just tired of running. They simply said we we just cannot keep this up. Sam Jones and his group, or Abiyaka and his group, mostly Mikasuki uh, and a few others, went up, went stayed out in the Everglades and were never brought in. Uh, Sam Jones dies sometime during the Civil War uh, out in the middle of the Everglades. No one knows where, uh, mm -hmm. or if they do, they sure aren't telling us. Uh, <laughs> and so we don't know where that man, but stop and think as a young man in the first Seminole War, he obviously observed some of these things. Uh, in the second Seminole War, he was a, a very predominant uh, man in the leadership of uh, the Seminoles and Mikasaki group. And of course, in the third Seminole War, he's kind of uh, the man behind the scenes, but he's getting old. Some people speculate that he died probably in his 90s, maybe even 100. Who knows? We don't know when he was born, and we don't know when and where exactly he died. So yeah. it's uh, one of those nebulous things that you have in mm -hmm. history that you just have to live with people who want uh, constant yes or no answers on it. Yeah. So the Seminoles, they, they refer to themselves as the unconquered. Because they yep. they never they never gave up. The official name of the group today is the Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee Tribe of Florida. It's the Seminole Tribe of Oklahoma, uh, and that's mm -hmm. where the majority of those who were fought who fought in the Second uh, and some of the Third Seminole War wound up. It's one of those things that uh, you know, the Seminole Wars play an extraordinarily important part uh, in. Uh, it is one of the most important things in Florida history by far. Joe Kanetch has been our right guest, Florida author. And historian, uh, thanks for sharing uh, so much of your insight on this really intriguing and uh, confusing, candidly, period of, of Florida history. Thanks, Joe. It's very complex. Appreciate it. We admit it. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime, Craig. Uh, I, I just want to make the point that that one of the other consequences of, of the Seminole Wars is, you know, the Seminoles are they they sort of faded into the into the Everglades and were not some of them were not pursued and they never surrendered and they lived there a uh, uh, very, very poor tribe compared to other native American tribes uh, until 
they uh, established their little cigarette operation and uh, and also figured out, hey, if, if we can, if we as an independent nation can sell cigarettes that's lower than the legal price that the whites have to charge, we can do other things too, including set up a gambling operation. And they started a mm-hmm. a, a, a bingo parlor in uh, in Hollywood with a uh, a much uh, bigger uh, prize limit there, and uh, it that led to them ultimately becoming uh, the first Native American tribe to have a gambling casino. And now they're so big they actually own the Hard Rock chain. So yeah, welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>